Braves games, a lot of Hawks games, and it was really like defining aspect of my childhood. And there was always something that my dad would do because, you know, when you're watching a game on a screen, you can see everything in front of you, but when you're at the stadium, there's a lot going on. There's you can see the opposite side of the stands. You can see all the players, all the coaches and stuff like that. And so when like a player would come onto the court or one of the, like a new pitcher come on the field, um, my dad would point to him and, or something in the distance. And if I didn't see what he was seeing, he would do this thing where he would kind of lean over where if I'm right here, he'd lean over and kind of reach his finger out and point where he would sort of get it, move his body to where his eyes and my eyes were looking in the same direction. And then he would take his finger and point out so that what he was seeing and what he was pointing to was exactly what I was seeing. And I realize now that that is more than just a means of me, of him pointing out what he wanted me to see. But that was actually a means of intimacy. It was a means of connecting with me as his son um, to just become really close to somebody so that you, everything that you see is exactly what they're seeing. Because you don't do that to strangers. You do that with people who are very, very close to you. I believe this morning that our Heavenly Father is patiently waiting to point to things in this world that he created to pull us really, really close to him so that everything that he is seeing is exactly what we're seeing. I want to pray for that this morning, and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, we just confess right now that you love us more than we have the capacity to imagine. You care about us more than we could ever hope for. And we confess, God, sometimes one of the hardest things for us to do is to open our hearts to receive your love. Father, I thank you for the gifts you've given this church, this body of believers, to be your hands and your feet, to be moving, to be active. But right now, Father, I'm just asking for the grace to be still, for the grace to sit at your feet, and to see what you're pointing at, and to listen. Thank you for speaking, even today. Father, your words are life. You have the words of life. Every word from your lips gives us breath. It gives us life. It gives us joy. And we want nothing more this morning than to hear you speak. So would you come Make yourself known here this morning by your word and by your voice. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as I said, it's, very, it's a very intimate thing to be looking at something off in the distance and to be with somebody very close to you and to pull them in close so that you can see the same thing that, that you're pointing at. So often with our Father, there's something that's keeping us from that, something that's pulling us away, something that is causing us to resist. And that's what we're going to be addressing this week. This week we're going to be talking about favoritism. Now I know that when we think about favoritism, a lot of times our minds drift towards things like racial inequality, social injustice, even politics. But the truth is that favoritism is not just a societal issue or a political issue. Favoritism is actually a very, very personal issue. It's a symptom of insecurities that we have deep within ourselves that hold us back from seeing what the Father wants us to see. And overcoming favoritism is not just about doing what we're supposed to do here in in Scripture. It is about pursuing the fullness of the fellowship that God has given us with him and about taking full advantage of what Jesus has died to give us and not settling until we have all of it. So if you'll turn your Bibles to James 2, I'm going to start start off with verses 1 through 7. So chapter 2. James writes, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he had promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Wow. So James here is writing to believers in in the diaspora that we're dealing with this same thing, favoritism. And you can really sense James' frustration as he's writing this. These believers were ignoring the ones that Jesus taught them to love and pandering to the people that were exploiting them and taking them into court. James is writing to these believers like they're a girl getting back together with a guy that broke broke their heart. So you can sense that frustration. That's like, why are you getting back with him? This is like... He, he's destroying you. He's taking you to court, and you're, you're coming back to him over and over and over again. And his frustration is very warranted. And now for those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, we're pretty smart. We've caught on to the whole love the poor, take care of the sick theme that we see in the words and teachings of Jesus. So this isn't news to us, nor was it news to the diaspora believers. Because you can tell James is just saying like, look, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Like He's asking a very rhetorical question here. He's like, guys, you know this. Why do you keep going back and doing this over and over and over again? So if we just stop 
pandering to those who are exploiting the church and start pursuing the poor and the oppressed and the orphans and the widows, like James says here, well, we'll be fine, right? I mean, yes, but there, there's more to it than that. You see, loving your enemy, taking care of the poor, visiting the widows and orphans, to me, these are more than commands. In my mind, these are invitations to go deeper into the heart of God and to see more and more of what he is really like. If we want to see what God is really like, you look at the life of Jesus. You see the people that Jesus went to. You see the people that Jesus loved. And you follow him first in your heart, and then it pours out into your actions. About a year ago, my mom and I went up to visit her mom at a, an assisted living home. And if any of you guys have been to an assisted living home they can be pretty depressing. Um, these are people that the world has kind of given up on. It's kind of like, okay, you're sort of at the end of your rope. You've given all that you have to offer. Now we're going to kind of set you aside and let you wait out the rest of your time. And it's, it's, a lot of them don't receive visitors, at least the place that we went to. And I know this isn't the case. This isn't an across-the-board issue. I know there's a lot of other complexities that go on in the issue. But the truth is that it can be very depressing. Um, so when my mom and I went to visit her mom, my mom went off to um, talk with the nurses and sort of exchange some information with them. And meanwhile, I was keeping my grandmother company while they were playing a game of bingo. And something, two things happened as, that, as this was happening, as I was sitting down. I just became overwhelmed with a heightened sense of awareness of God's presence in that room. It's one of those moments where you just suddenly out of nowhere, you realize God is here, like Jesus is here. And then the second thing that happened was I became more into that game of bingo than any other game of bingo I've been to in my life. I, I started ta- talking smack with, like, ladies from the other table. I started, like, you know, I, I just got really into it. I would cheer at the top of my lungs when we won. It was, it was like I just had lost my mind um, and... Honestly, if any of my friends were there, they would probably take me out of the room and do like, you need to chill out. This is a game of bingo with elderly people. You just need to dial it down a little bit. But, but the reason I feel like I got really lost in that game was because I realized that this is the place where Jesus would spend his time. This is the place where Jesus would, would kick back and relax with the people that the rest of the world has forgotten about. Like People would be looking for Jesus where they would think they would find him, but he would really be somewhere that no one would expect him to be. And we've gotten used to where he's going to be. It's like, oh yeah, he went to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, all these things like that. But that we don't realize how shocking and how unex- unexpected that was. So when I realized that, I, I, realized, I remembered that story as I was reading through this passage because we look at verse 5 and it says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. So why then is it that they are not pursuing that gold mine that, that God has set up for them and instead going to the people that are taking them to court, the people who are rich in the eyes of the world, who are really harming their souls, who don't, who don't mean any good for them. And I believe that's because one of the greatest tactics our enemy uses against us is fear and insecurity. Rather than resting in the perfect love and approval that has already been given to us in Jesus, we occasionally find ourselves on our hands and knees 
looking around for, the peop- for approval, for security in who we are from people around us. And this leads us sometimes to pander to people who, who don't have to offer what Jesus has to offer, whether they want to offer it or not. In this case, these people were pandering to the rich, the people who were exploiting the church. It's like we are inept construction workers that are trying to make our own additions and our own remodeling to a divine masterpiece, which is you. Everyone in this room sitting here is a divine masterpiece. And that Jesus is currently building and constructing and forming. And we have to do nothing except for submit and surrender to what he's already doing. We don't need to find approval on our own. We don't need to search for it. It's already been given to us in full and eternal abundance. So what this does is it ignore, it, it leads us to ignore the ones that God is really leading us to pursue. Not just leading us, but also commanding us. So we see in verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So we see that by disobeying God's command, these believers have found themselves pandering to those who only mean them harm. And in that, we see that the purpose of the law, other than the obvious purpose that we see um, that Paul reveals in his epistles, which was to show us that our need for grace, our inability to fulfill the law on our own, um, was also to protect us. It's to protect us from pandering to those that are rich, that are, are wealthy in the eyes of the world, that would only hurt us, and to protect us from acting out of our insecurities, as well as also to see God rightly and to see his world rightly. But like these diaspora believers, we res- oftentimes respond to the uncertainties of life out of fear rather than out of faith. And we allow the value systems of this world to infect the way that we live in ways that are often too subtle for us to see. See, fear and insecurity leads us to disobey a loving God that we truly desire to love and to obey. And this all started back in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Eve, not just with the apple, but also with a lie about who God is. Like, don't you realize that if you eat this apple that, that God is, that you, your eyes will be open and you will become just like God? And see, this wasn't just an issue of pride. This was an issue of distrust. Satan is saying, don't you see? God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's trying to hold you back from what you could become if you just did this, even though he said not to. See, it's out of that at distrust, this thing like, God, you're holding out on me, so I need to take matters into my own hands, literally grabbing this fruit and eating from it. And that has continued all the way until today. The idea of, God, you're holding back on me, so I have to find my own approval. I have to find my own acceptance. I'm going to pander to the rich. I'm going to ignore the poor. I'm going to look out for myself because you may or may not be. And God, of course, being so loving and so generous, he refused to let that sit. In Jeremiah 31, 33, 
He said that he would make a new covenant with us, saying, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. In Matthew 5, we see Jesus, the chosen Messiah, who says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Every letter, every dot of that law will be fulfilled. And then when describing this finished work, Paul in Romans 8, saying that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And now this spirit lives in us, pulling us closer and closer to the face of God, giving us his heart, his love, and his vision, pulling us close to him so that once again we can see things the way that we were meant to see them, eye to eye with the Father. And so it's by this law, this this royal law that's found in Scripture, not the law of Moses that was only to point out our sin, but the law of the Spirit that's been given to us, that's been fulfilled for us, so that once again we can be the sons and daughters of God that we were always meant to be. Another thing the Spirit does is he reminds us that we are forgiven. And I cannot emphasize that enough because what happens when we find ourselves neglecting the poor? What happens when we we come to a a sermon or hear a sermon on Sunday morning and realize, oh man, I really haven't been doing enough. I really have not been doing enough. I haven't been sharing the gospel with my friends. I haven't been um, reaching out to the poor. I haven't done any of these things. What is God's response to that? You see, I used to read passages like this and imagine God as a spiritual health inspector, walking around my soul with a clipboard, looking for any violation, anything at all, pointing it out and then writing it down on his clipboard, pointing this out, writing it down on his clipboard until the list, and he's going through sheet after sheet after sheet, saying, yeah, you haven't really, yep, you, you looked lustfully at a woman, yep, you had anger in your heart, that's murder, you had this, that's adultery, you had this, that's, and just the list keeps getting longer and longer. Even in the New Testament, I see these things and I'm like, I have not, I've been neglecting the poor. But that's not at all what God is like. He is so kind. He is so loving. He is so full of mercy that in this passage later, we see that the mercy that he offers has canceled the judgment of our sentence. It's been fulfilled in the blood of Jesus that if we receive it, all of that sentence, all of that, all of these violations have been forgotten, have been covered. You see, at this point, God is no longer interested in keeping track of our violations. His only desire is to pull us close to him. We are his desire. We are what Jesus sought after to the point of his own death and resurrection. Each of you in this room was worth the blood of Jesus being shed was worth Jesus enduring the full wrath of the Father. You were worth it in his eyes. And he wants nothing more than to pull you close to him and keep you here forever and ever and ever. So now, since this is God's desire, what is our response? How do we respond to this? Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment, exclamation point. So our response is to live out, the, live out a life according to the law that gives freedom. 
Paul talks at length through his epistles about the law that brings death. The, the law was good, but it, it brought about death because it showed us that we can't do it. We can't keep it. We break it every time over and over and over, and the consequences for that is death. But this law gives freedom because it's a law that has been perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So what does it mean to live by the law of the Spirit? We hear that phrase a lot in Christian circles, living by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, living, keeping in step with the Spirit is another translation um, of one of Paul's epistles. And I've been convicted over the past several years that that starts with listening. So many of us in this church, none more so than me, are all about action, are all about results. Let's see the, let's see the poor clothed. Let's see the, the naked clothed. Let's see um, the sick healed. Let's see results. We want to see visible transformation in our city. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? You know, we, we need to see this, these things. And those are good. Those are really good. In fact, next week we're going to be talking about faith without works is dead. And so, like, you know, we, we need those works. Yet for a long time, my issue, my personal issue, was that I major in action while minoring in listening for God's voice. I've been more and more convicted that God's MO for my life is not so much to complete his mission as much as it is to have a dialogue with me, to have a relationship with me, to pull me close, to share this life that he's given me, this abundant life, not for me to be so consumed with, I have to do this, I have to do this, otherwise I'm, I'm, otherwise what? Your sins have been atoned for, you've been forgiven. The whole dynamic of our relationship changes when we see that God's, and for me it changed when God's MO was to interact and to have a dialogue with me, Father and Son. And he started me on a journey recently of listening for what he's really saying not just what I think he's saying. It's a journey of quieting my soul and making space in my heart for him. Giving him permission to surprise me, to offend me, to challenge me, to woo me, to comfort me, to do whatever he wants to do, trusting that it will be good every single time. Obedience is no longer my objective. It is the means to my objective. Abiding in the love of Jesus is, my, is the means that's laid out for me in Scripture to know him more, to, ab- to abide and to obey, to rest in him. Obedience is not its own reward. It's, it's, it's a, it leads us into a deeper fellowship with him. It leads us into a deeper trust of him. It leads to our old self becoming just less and less active in our lives and the new one that's alive and well becoming more and more clear and more and more obvious. Sometimes I spend too much time listening to what people say about God's heart when the whole time God himself through the Holy Spirit and through his word is eagerly waiting to do that right now. So is as we spend more and more time listening and being still in our hearts, spending time in the Father's presence, cultivating our hearts in the riches of his love, 
we become more and more immersed in the culture of heaven. We become more and more immersed in the perspective of our Father. Suddenly, the poor and the oppressed are not just our assignment, they're our treasure. (laughs) We can't help ourselves but to just run after them. And not in our own strength, because we know that the love that is pulling us towards them is not from us. It's from the Father. We're not just obeying orders. We are living out of fellowship with Jesus. And it's not just because it's what we're supposed to do, but because we finally see what God sees and we genuinely love what he loves. Because we've let go of all of our need to find our security, to find who we are in other people, in the voice of man, in the voice of this world, even in the voice of the accuser, of the enemy, who thinks he's trying to expose holes in God's character when there are none to be found. We're secure and confident enough in who God says we are and who the Holy Spirit, who's living in you right now, says that you are. We are secure enough in that to let go of our need to pander, to let go of our need to sell out, to let go of our need to blend in and to start living a life like Jesus lived, who being in very nature God did not find equality with God something to hold on to but became nothing, taking on the form of flesh. Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God raised him and exalted him to the highest place in heaven, giving him the name that is above every name, that name at which every knee shall bow. You know, in Revelation, and it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Sorry, that's Isaiah 6. Where it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For you have, with your blood, you have purchased people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Why is Jesus worthy? Because he is who he is. He he was worthy before he laid down his life. But now that he has laid down his life and has been raised up and has covered us with his blood and we have been purchased by him, we are just launched into praise. We are launched into just worship. And we are launched into the heart of, and the perspective and the vision of our Father. And we say, Lord, I will drop everything if it means that I can be pulled close to you the way I was meant to be, so that I can see the world the way that you do. So, Father, um, I really believe there's nothing more to be said on my part. Except that I'm sorry. I'm not saying that as somebody who's in trouble or who's about to be punished, but I'm saying that as somebody who knows, who has seen the desires of your heart and seen my inability to fulfill them and is right now inviting your spirit on behalf of this whole church to come, to stir, to move Thank you for how kind you are to us, God. Thank you that your desire is no longer to punish us. It's no longer to keep records of wrong. Thank you that your desire is to crown us 
as the heirs of your kingdom. To put rings on our fingers, to put robes on our backs, to put crowns on our heads, to to slaughter the fattened calf for us, to throw a party for us. Lord, we've done nothing to deserve that. And Lord, we could spend the rest of our lives serving the poor. We could spend the rest of our lives going after the people that you care about, and it would not move your heart as much as the reality that we are yours. So Holy Spirit, right now, because you're so kind, because you are so loving, and because you want nothing more than to pull us close to you, closer and closer and closer, to see things the way that you do, to see love the way that you do, to see grace, to see compassion the way that you do. Would you just speak to us right now, each person in this room? I thank you, God, that you oftentimes speak in in ways that that show us what steps we're supposed to take or or steps of guidance or what we're supposed to do or conviction. But I think... Lord, I'm moved that one of your favorite things to speak over us is just how much you love us. So I ask, Lord, that for the rest of this time, you would give us the grace to be still. Lord, I believe so many in this room, God, are, we're so used to moving, we're so used to action, we're so used to laboring in a misguided misplaced attempt to please you when you are so pleased with us just the way we are right now because when you look at us you see your son thank you thank you, thank you, thank you thank you we have no idea what we've been given And we don't know what else to do with it than to just praise you and to just drop everything else in our lives and say, we are yours. We just don't care what the world has to offer anymore. We don't care what the rich have to offer us anymore because we found what true riches are. And it's in your blood, Jesus. It's in your love. Just come and have your way with us the rest of this time.